The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Thank you so much for joining us online today, wherever you're at. I know that God has something really, really special for you today. We are continuing through the Gospel of Luke. We're in the 22nd chapter. If you were able to join us last week, then you know that Judas has set a plan out to seize Jesus, to arrest him secretly, and the religious leaders, they want him gone. So his arrest is not going to end with jail time. It's going to end in his execution. This is going to come to a head at the end of our passage today, but we actually have several beautiful verses. It's almost uncanny to think that in the midst of something so profound as the Last Supper, Jesus sharing one final meal with his disciples, Jesus having the Passover feast with his closest friends, people he's ministered with for three years now. In the midst of that, you have this betrayer kind of still plotting his course. And once again, we'll get there. But as we begin, I want us to focus on the beauty. I want us to see just how truly special these next few moments were for Jesus with his disciples as he taught, as he showed his affection and love, and as he prepared them for his death the next day. So this is where we go. This is where we start. We're in Luke chapter 22, verses 7 and 8. There were preparations that needed to be made. It says this, Then came the day of unleavened bread. Okay, to us that means very little, but it's the day on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So the Passover goes all the way back to Exodus, when God set his people free from captivity in Egypt and the final plague, the final 10 plagues came upon Egypt. The firstborn in every house was killed that night by the angel of death. But those who smeared the lamb's blood over their doorposts, that angel passed over those homes. That's the Passover. And for thousands of years to this point, the Jewish people, the worshipers of God have been celebrating that Remembrance, celebrating that day when the angel of death passed over, when God gave them grace. So that's what's happening here. Verse 8 Jesus sent Peter and John, his two closest disciples, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. It's today. We need preparations made. I choose you. Go make sure this happens. It is the 14th day of Nisan. Now, That month means nothing to us because it's not our Greco-Roman calendar. But picture this. It's the same as December 25th. That day of the week changes for us, but that is Christmas. Whatever day of the week that falls on, it's a special day. This day, this day of unleavened bread, this first day of the seven-day festival of Passover, it is huge because this is the day where everyone, everyone who follows God stops to offer a sacrificial lamb, and to remember the kindness and the mercy of God. Jerusalem, the city of God, is packed with faithful Jewish worshipers. Some people estimate as many as one million pilgrims have traveled into this city. The city is not big enough to hold a million guests, but it is busting at the seams, and every worshiper is preparing for this meal. Every worshiping family needs a lamb to sacrifice on this day. Now, they would go to the temple in Jerusalem to slaughter the lamb. That was just customary. 
You couldn't slaughter the lamb yourself. You had to go to the temple to offer this lamb as a sacrifice. So on this day, on the 14th of Nisan, work ended at noon. Everything shut down. Okay, it was a holiday. Everything shut down at noon. At three o'clock, the slaughtering of the lambs began. Now, this is incredibly hard to picture, but 100,000 lambs had to be slaughtered between 3 p.m. and about 8 p.m. that night. So there's multiple lines. There's people hundreds deep waiting to sacrifice their lamb so they could go home and then cook it on the spit and have that meal that night to remember the Passover. The blood of the lamb was sprinkled on the altar. The fat was given as offerings to the priests. Everything was beautiful except for the fact that can you imagine the smell? Can you imagine the smell in Jerusalem? as 100,000 lambs are slaughtered to provide sacrifice for the million people who have come to worship. The Passover meal had to be consumed in Jerusalem. Now, this is not biblical. This was extra biblical, meaning the religious leaders had established this hundreds of years ago. They said, this is where it has to take place. It has to take place in the city of God. Here's what's interesting. The city of God, Jerusalem, wasn't big enough to house everyone, wasn't big enough for everyone to have a place to make this meal. So what they did for this one week is they expanded the city limits. You got to love that, right? You got to come to the temple, pay a temple tax, slaughter your lamb. You get to take the lamb back, you get to cook it, but you have to eat it within the city limits. So we are going to expand the city limits for this one week to make sure that you can fall under our rules. Now, making preparations, why Jesus sent Peter and John out early that day was so important because real estate was hard to come by. With this many worshipers, you couldn't just show up somewhere and go, hey, hey, I, I want to have the Passover feast in your home. You had to have a plan. Now, it was customary for residents of Jerusalem to allow travelers into their home on this one day so they could abide by the rules of the religious elite and they could have their Passover meal in the city limits. So it was customary for houses to have multiple families in them. Some in the guest room, some in the main kitchen, some in the living room. They were all having their own Passover feast. That was very common. But Jesus knew he wanted one very specific place. He wanted to have his Passover meal, his final meal with his disciples in a very specific home. And he sent them ahead with these instructions. Luke chapter 22, verses 9 through 12. They asked, where do you want us to prepare it? Verse 10, he replied, as you enter the city, there's going to be a man carrying a jar of water. He will meet you. He will come up to you. Now, to us, that's not very distinguishing. A man carrying a jar of water. What, what does that mean? Well, in the first century, men did not go get the water. That was a child's or a woman's task. A man would have never been caught dead carrying water through the city. So it's absolutely a sign. If they see a man carrying a water jug, that's who they are supposed to talk with. He will meet with you. Follow him to the house that he enters. Wherever he goes, that's where I want to be. You're going to see him. You're going to know him. Follow him to this house. Verse 11. And say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? More specifically, where is the upper room? Where is the big 
banquet room in your home. Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? That's what they were to do. That's what they were to ask. Jesus had already made these preparations. Verse 12, he will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. We're having our final meal together. We're having our Passover meal there in this upper room. Now, many have speculated, I cannot prove this, but many have speculated that this house is actually the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, Mark, the gospel writer. Can't prove that. It's just lore. It's history. But more than likely, that is correct. So this is the house of John Mark's mother. Now, in this particular house, though, we do know some incredible things are going to happen in the next 50, 60 days. First of all, in this house is where Jesus will appear to his disciples after he's conquered death. When they are huddled up, scared, not knowing where to go. They go back to the room where they had last had a meal with Jesus and they're sitting there and it's there that Jesus walks through the door and shows himself to them, having resurrected, having beaten death. It's in that same room that about 120 will gather in prayer after seeing the resurrected Jesus, waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. And it's in that room that the Holy Spirit will descend upon their prayer gathering like tongues of fire and the early church is born. The church was born in this upper room. Now, there are some, if you go to the Holy Land, who will claim they know the house where this happened. No one knows for sure, but I would love to go there. I would love to stand in that room, assuming it still exists. We don't know. But to stand in the room where the church started. Stand in the room where Jesus had his final meal with his disciples. Stand in the room where he gave the upper room discourse, where he told them, you just hold on and I'll send the Holy Spirit. Stand in the room where the Holy Spirit fell. I I don't know. Maybe it's nostalgia, but I I would love to be in that room. I would love to be there. Once Peter and John made the proper preparations, then the rest of the gang showed up and they had the Last Supper. That's what we call it. That's what it's been known as for us. But it's also where we receive our instructions for Holy Communion, something we take on a regular basis to remember who Jesus was and what he did for us. It's in this meal that we receive these instructions. Now, it's important to note that what Jesus will do during this Last Supper is he will follow follow a Jewish Seder. He will have a Seder meal. Some some of you have maybe had Seder meals around Easter time. You've had these. You've experienced the reading of the Old Testament passages, specifically Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. You've heard that read. You've you've consumed the cups. You've, You've had the meal. You've been reminded of all that God has done for his people, and specifically then what Jesus does on this night. Maybe you've done that, but that's the formula that he's following It's very specific. It's been happening for years. So Jesus begins that meal and Luke records some of it, not all of it, but the gospel writers give us a full picture of it. Within the Seder meal, there would be four cups 
of wine that were consumed. Each cup represented a portion of Exodus chapter 6, 6, and 7. And as you consume the cup, then that passage would be read to remind you of what God has done and what he promises to do. The first cup was consumed actually in the foyer of the home prior to the meal. So you walked in and you started with the first cup and then someone would read this passage. They would say, therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I promise to set you free. That's what started the Passover feast. After a while, a second cup would be drank. And this happened before the meal, before the lamb was brought out. Now, as this second cup was being consumed, someone would read this passage. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will free you from being slaves. Now, we know because of the New Testament that what Jesus did actually was free us from being slaves to sin. We are no longer under the bondage of the Egyptians, but we are bound by our sinful nature. And Jesus, becoming the perfect sacrificial lamb for us, he sets us free from our sin. And this second cup reminds us of the promise that God has for us, that I will free you from being slaves. You will no longer be slaves to sin. Now, after the second cup was consumed, what happened was the youngest boy in the room would stand up and they would stand up and ask the patriarch of the family or of the room. So a grandfather, an older uncle, if it need be the father of the family, if the father was gone, the oldest brother, but the youngest boy in the room would stand up and say, please, please, sir, will you tell us the story of the Exodus? Will you remind us of what God did? And that man would then stand up and to his family recite the story. Now, there's no young boy in this room. So Jesus, without being asked, he stands up. And instead of talking about the Exodus, he talks about what will come. And church, this is where it gets really, really beautiful. Luke chapter 22, 13 through 19. The first few verses are just catching us up. But then the next are where we have our commands for the Lord's Supper. It says this, they left, Peter and John, they left, and they found things just as Jesus told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, before I die. For I tell you, I will not eat it again. I'm not going to be here next year. I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God, until this Passover meal is happening at the great wedding banquet in heaven. And he said to them, I'm sorry, verse 17, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to him saying, this is my body given for you. Do this, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is establishing something here that's new. 
The Passover meal has been happening every year for thousands of years, but he's establishing something very new, and it's something that we call taking communion. After, after he had blessed the meal, he broke the bread and he distributed it to his disciples. That represents a blessing that is poured out. In the Passover meal, as the father breaks the bread and hands it out to his children, that is showing the blessings of God. As Jesus broke the bread and said, hey, do this in remembrance of me. Every time you break this bread, remember me. Remember the sacrifice. Remember what I'm going to do to lay my life down for you. What I'm doing is I'm becoming the lamb, the sacrificial lamb of God. My body will be broken so that you will no longer be slaves to sin. He's teaching his disciples and he's doing so in a way that they can replicate and they can remember. They can do so every time they break bread together. The blessing of the Exodus will be poured out to all who are in Christ Jesus because his body was broken for you. That's what he wants his disciples to see. That's the message he wants his disciples to take to the masses. How amazing, how cool that Jesus would use something so common so that every time his disciples gathered together for a meal, they would remember what he'd done for them. The third cup is drank in this way, Luke chapter 22, verse 20. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, so the third cup, and said this, this is the cup, this is the cup that is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The third cup in the Seder is consumed after the meal. So that's why Jesus hands it out after the bread had been broken, after the lamb had been served. He says this, I will redeem you with outstretched arms and with mighty acts of judgment. That's what was to be recited from Exodus chapter 6. And I believe that Jesus said this, I'm going to redeem you with the purchase price being my blood. They all drank of this third cup and he tells them, This symbolizes my blood, the blood that is so very important in Jewish faith. Because in Jewish faith, blood is believed to be where life is stored. I give you my life. I give you my eternity. Blood was used for atoning of sins. Priests sprinkled blood on the altar as a sin offering. When Jesus makes the statement, he is saying, no more sacrifices are needed. You don't have to keep going to the altar and offering up lambs and doves and different things like that. No, you don't have to do that. I am going to become for you the perfect sacrifice. The blood that I will pour out will be sufficient for all of your sins. It was blood that sealed the covenants. The covenants that God made with different men and women throughout the years. And Jesus' sacrificial death is a new covenant. It's a covenant-making event. It marks an act of redemption And it begins a new relationship between God and his people, one that supersedes the old covenant. The old covenant was based on the law. One had to obey the law, and when they fell short, which all do, they had to go offer the correct sacrifice for their misdeed. But now God, through his one and only son, offered up a sacrifice that was sufficient for all, all of our sins. And Jesus is instituting this right now in the upper room with his disciples and telling them, don't ever forget it. Don't ever forget how loved you are. Don't ever forget how much the Lord has done for you. Don't ever forget me. 
because my body broken and my blood spilled for your sins is sufficient. This is a new covenant. This is a new way of looking at things. Jesus did not drink the fourth cup as he said before. He won't do it until he gets to do it again at the wedding feast. He gets to do it again in the kingdom of God with those who have placed their faith in him. He holds off of that. And we will read verse 18 again, Luke 22, verse 18, just to remind you why he did not finish the Seder because he wanted to wait. I'll wait till we can celebrate this in heaven. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus says to his people, you're now under a new covenant and that new covenant will bring you life. And I can't wait to celebrate it with you. Jesus will wait until the feast, until the time where he may drink with them because of what his body and blood have purchased, which is their eternal life in the kingdom of God. Now, this night, as beautiful as it was, had something evil lurking in the background. And that was Judas. And that was his betrayal. And Luke throws it right on the end of this. I I would have given some space there. I would have maybe thrown in a different story, but you can't because in the midst of this beauty, in the midst of this grace, in the midst of eternity being sealed, you have Judas. Luke chapter 22, 21 and 23. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Someone I'm eating with is going to betray me. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe, woe to that man who betrays me. My death is predetermined. It's essential for the salvation of the world. The Son of Man will go, but woe to the man who betrays me. Verse 23, they began to question among themselves which of them it might be. Who would possibly do this? Who would possibly betray this man? The statement that Jesus made, it saddens the table because table ethics were huge in the first century. For Jewish people to eat with someone meant you accepted them. But even more than that, to eat together, it was evidence of a peace between you, a trust. There was forgiveness there of any wrong that has been done. There was a brotherhood or camaraderie. That's why this last supper was so important to Jesus. He wanted to show his disciples and those who were with him, you are part of my family. I give you peace, trust, forgiveness, camaraderie, brotherhood. You're part of the family. But there was one who wasn't. There was one who was scheming. Sharing a meal was such a big deal that in the Old Testament, covenants were actually sealed by sharing a meal. So it's no wonder they all got sad and started to question Is it me? It can't be me. I wouldn't do this. Is it you? I don't think it's you. We've been going back. We've been doing this for so long. They will learn soon enough who it is, as Jesus will identify his betrayer. But it was all part of God's plan. Zechariah 11, 7 through 14 tells us this, but Psalm 41, 9 quotes it exactly. It says this, Even my close friend, someone I trust, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. And speaking of Judas, almost a thousand years before it happened, 
Judas's betrayal was part of the plan for your salvation and mine. For if he hadn't handed Jesus over to the religious leaders, then Jesus eventually would have given up his life, but it wouldn't happen the next day. So when Judas leaves here in a few moments from this meal to betray Jesus, he's actually working on behalf of God, despite the fact that he's a betrayer. And today, church, we remember the life that was laid down, the life that was sacrificed, the lamb that was provided for us so that our sins might be forgiven, so that we might have eternal life, so that all who believe will be granted that freedom and that eternity that Jesus paid for with his body and blood. Today we remember. And I I don't have the bread and the cup to serve to you, but if you would pause and just take a moment and find some elements within your house, it doesn't have to be perfect, to remember the body that was sacrificed and the blood that was shed for you, for your sins and mine. Jesus wanted his disciples to remember this night forever. I think it's imperative that we as the church remember the sacrifice that was made and we live our lives in such a way as to honor and glorify the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. To never forget, to never forget, but to live for his kingdom, for his purpose and for his glory. Because the price that was paid for your life and mine was a great price. It was the price of his life. Father, help us remember that today. As we think of you and we're mindful of your sacrifice of your son, we know that your love for us is perfect and good. I pray that we would be able to understand your love, that we'd be able to bask in your glory and your grace, and that we'd be able to show that love and grace to others. Help us, help us, Lord, to walk in step with you, to remember your son, Jesus, and to live every day for his glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.